All right, well, thank you so much, Johnny, for that welcome, and uh, good to see everybody here this morning. Uh, I just want you to, if you got that card right now, you just pull it out, turn it over to the back side. You can see that it says Caregiver Volunteer Response Card. You can put your name, email, contact info, and there's, there's a, a few different things that are listing there where you could potentially go and serve. Um, if you're interested in doing that, and we pray that uh, some of you are, fill that out, and after you're done, there is a, uh, as Johnny mentioned, there's a table in the back. We're going to have some volunteers. Please drop the card in there, return it to us so that we know that we can get in touch with you uh, if you're interested in serving. So we'd love to have you um, give of your time, talent, and treasure in that, in that way. Uh, we got a great care ministry here, and so we're, uh, we're excited to, to have you with us. Um, well, as Johnny mentioned, we are indeed in the middle of a series on Ecclesiastes that we're calling Meaning in the Madness, and <clears throat> we have been discussing some large issues in life. So last week, we covered the topic of uncertainty. Uh, two weeks ago, we talked about wisdom, and today we're going to talk about the topic of folly, of folly. And to set the stage for that topic, let me introduce you to a well-known figure from the wild, wild west of American history, uh, that of General George Custer. Uh, you may remember him because he had a last stand at Little Bighorn, but even before that happened, he was known for taking ill-advised risks. For example, in the spring of 1867, George Custer was on a scouting expedition on the plains of Kansas, which I don't know why anybody would ever want to go to the plains of Kansas. I've been there, but he was out there checking things out, and suddenly he left his regiment behind and decided to chase down a giant buffalo. Now, Custer quickly forgot about his men when he spotted this enormous shaggy bull because he was an avid hunter. And so Custer was so eager to bring home this new trophy that he put his spurs to the horse and they began the chase. And as they, they gained on the buffalo, George Custer drew out a, a pearl-handled pistol. He came alongside the thundering beast and he shoved the barrel into its shaggy side. But then he did something really, really strange. George Custer paused. He felt the ground shake. He heard the ragged breathing of both animals side by side, and he, he pulled the pistol back just to prolong the enjoyment of the chase. And after several minutes, George Custer decided it was time again for the kill. So again, he took that pistol, he shoved it into the buffalo, but this time, as if sensing Custer's intentions, the buffalo abruptly turned toward the horse, the horse veered away from the buffalo's horns, and when Custer tried to grab the reins with both hands, his finger accidentally fired a bullet into the horse's head, killing it instantly. So Custer was thrown to the ground he struggled quickly to his feet to face the animal, but instead of charging, the buffalo just stared at this strange, foolish man and walked off. And George Custer was left alone and horseless to make the long trek back to his regiment. Has anybody out there ever chased down a buffalo? Maybe, maybe not literally, um, but... This story is an example of the type of folly that Solomon's going to get at in chapter 10 of Ecclesiastes. Because George Custer was a fool, not necessarily because he took the risk of chasing a buffalo, but because he didn't kill the buffalo when he had a chance. He didn't kill the buffalo because he was blinded by the thrill. He was just playing with the buffalo, forgetting about the danger of the buffalo. 
Now, sometimes that's okay, but other times it can leave you with a dead horse standing face to face with a giant animal who can easily kill you. George Custer is an example of what the Bible calls a fool or somebody who engages in folly because sometimes you need to kill the buffalo before the buffalo kills you. Now, the same recklessness and arrogance would lead the general and his men to their death on a flat-topped hill next to a river called Little Bighorn a few years later. But at that point, he had a history of foolishness and folly. Now, at this point, you might be asking yourself, what is folly? That's that's not a normal word. What is folly? Well, let me offer a definition. Folly is a costly undertaking having an absurd or ruinous outcome. Folly is a absurd un, uh, abs, uh, is a costly undertaking having an, an absurd or ruinous outcome. So, a reckless chase of a buffalo turns into a costly endeavor where George Custer loses his horse, which, to be clear, is kind of like losing your car today. So imagine you're driving your brand new Tesla down on Route 22 when all of a sudden somebody cuts you off, which might not be too hard to imagine. You decide it's time to chase down that person and let them know about your displeasure, but as you get close, the assailant runs you off the road and boom, no more car. It's costly. Here's what I want you to see today. All of us at some point in life will be tempted to chase a buffalo, not a real one, but a symbolic one. And in the midst of the chase, sometimes you just need to kill the buffalo before the buffalo kills you. Don't forget, like George Custer, that the buffalo has power. Or as the great Puritan writer John Owen very famously warned the church, you need to be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That enormous shaggy bull might make a great hunt, but chasing it may lead to disaster. In fact, somebody may be telling you right now, they may be shouting, chasing that buffalo would be folly. Let me offer three general, non-exhaustive categories of folly that may resonate with you. First, I think there is relational folly. And this can take the form of a friendship or maybe a romantic partner. Uh, In fact, if you're a teenager here today, uh, you may really want to be friends with that group of people at school. Like, there's just a draw to go, to chase, and be part of that group. You may, you may get in, and then you may feel accepted for a time, but the influence of that group of friends, that they, the influence they exert over you might have a cost in your life, and it would actually be wiser to cut them off. Others of us have received advice during the dating phase of a relationship. Uh, your buffalo may have been that, that person that you were, you were chasing down, trying to get them to be your potential spouse, but those who knew you best were saying, don't do it. Don't do it, but you don't want to see it. And when the relationship ended, there was an immense cost emotionally, and you realized it was folly, because sometimes you need to kill the buffalo before the buffalo kills you or before it stampedes over your heart. Second, there is financial folly, because for others, the buffalo might be money. You know, you want to close the deal and make the right investment, but wise people in your life are saying, don't do that. It wasn't until the money was gone that you understood your pursuits were folly. Because sometimes the thrill of the chase blinds us. We don't realize what's happening until our horse is dead because we shot it in the head. And then the buffalo standing over top of us demanding the money that we owe it. And finally, there's spiritual folly. Too many people in our world worship at the wrong altars. And it leads to poor decision-making. So whatever that buffalo is for you, it's so enticing, all you want to do is chase it, but then it starts to consume your life. 
I think the Bible has a few stories about turning animals into objects of worship that are problematic. The buffalo, it might be an addiction, it might be a secret sin, whatever it is, it might consume us. Our buffalo, um, it's a good thing that turns into an ultimate thing in our lives, an idol. And friends may have pointed out that idolatrous relationship that you have, but it wasn't clear until you were left enslaved and empty that it was folly. And at that point, your friend is just saying, don't chase the buffalo, you got to shoot the buffalo. What is your buffalo? What is the thing you are chasing that is costing you time and talent and treasure that's going to lead to ruin? It might need to die. Because Solomon is going to tell us in this chapter, beware. In the end, the buffalo might leave us alone without a horse or a friend. And so at the end of chapter 9, Solomon hints at these unwise decisions people make. He says this, He says, the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. And the point of chapter 10 is going to be this. If we let just a little bit of folly in, a little bit of foolishness, it can ruin all the wise decisions that we made. It can taint them. So General George Custer may have have made a bunch of strategic decisions in battle in the course of his life, but one bad decision with a buffalo cost him a horse, and it almost cost him his life. His folly, his final folly, would lead to the deaths of his whole regiment. It's costly. He didn't kill the buffalo, and eventually that buffalo, that proverbial buffalo, killed him. So today I want to talk with you about the fight against folly. That's the subject of Ecclesiastes chapter 10. When you pursue folly, it obscures your meaning and purpose in life. It leaves you empty. And so Solomon, the teacher, will show us how to wage this fight by introducing us to three small animals. First, we're going to see the stench of dead flies. Second, we're going to see the venom of a snake. And third, the tweet of a bird. We have a lot of animals in the message today, so it's kind of like we're going to the zoo. Uh, by the way, commentators will tell you this is probably in Ecclesiastes the most difficult passage to, uh, to interpret. So we're going to see what the Lord teaches us today. Let's pray and ask for God's Spirit to guide us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for my friends who are here. Thank you for those that are watching at home, those that are listening later on. Uh, Father, I pray that you would just open our hearts to hear what you would have to say to us from your word. And ultimately, Lord, may we lift our eyes up to you. May we look beyond the sun to the Creator And the Creator's Son, you, Lord Jesus, who have died for us to set us free, who who leads us not on the path of folly, but on the path of glory as we seek you. So we give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, first, the stench of dead flies. Wow, that's an image, right? In fact, here's what it might look like right here behind me. Now, if you've been following along with our series, you know that Ecclesiastes is a very unusual book. Solomon makes odd statements along with odd images. Sometimes he just doesn't seem to make sense. He's all over the place. This is one of those chapters. Even the great reformer Martin Luther said this, Solomon, man, he really makes some harsh transitions. And I say, yeah, he does. So let's examine this opening illustration. Here's how Solomon opens chapter 10. He says, dead flies make the perfume, perfumer's ointment give off a stench so that a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. 
Now, the second half of the verse makes it clear what he's talking about. You can be the wisest person in the world, like Solomon, but just a few foolish decisions, they can tarnish your life. But the opening illustration reinforces this idea. So picture right now that you have the most expensive perfume on the market, okay? Whatever the most expensive perfume is. For example, I, I Googled and I found, out, I found this one, the Roja Parfume Roja Houtlux. I don't know if I said that right, but that's what it looks like on there. It's available at Saks Fifth Avenue for slightly less than $3,000 a bottle. Now, Imagine you go and purchase this really, 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 really expensive perfume and accidentally you put it by the window and leave the bottle open and a bunch of flies are attracted to the smell and they go and they get in the bottle and then you're not paying attention. You close the bottle up, trapping the flies and they die. And then later on, maybe the next day or a couple days later, you go and you open it up, you open up your $3,000 bottle of perfume and it's ruined because there's a bunch of dead flies in there. And that'll change the smell of the perfume. It would also be a bad marketing strategy. By the way, just imagine that you're, you're out on a date with your spouse and you catch a whiff of a really interesting scent. And you ask, you know, honey, what is that, what is that perfume? What is that, what is that cologne that you're wearing? And imagine they reply, it's called dead fly. <laughs> Man, that's going to change the tone of the night, isn't it? What's that smell? Dead flies. Oh, okay, all right. Next time you walk into Sephora, you can suggest it and see what happens. Now, Solomon says this. This is what it's like when you let just a little bit of folly into your life. It can take a $3,000 bottle of perfume and turn it into a terrible marketing strategy. It's striking. A little folly, he says, outweighs all the wisdom you might have. Beware. Now, the question is, how do you fight against that folly? He offers a clue in verse 2. He says, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Now, don't read this into any kind of commentary on 21st century American politics. Even though there is a bit of a political tone to this passage with the king and all that and the rulers. But the, re the reality is that whenever the Bible uses the image of the right, it's referring to the path of moral goodness, the right hand and all that. In other words, the wise person pursues moral good, the path to the right, but the fool resists that path and goes to the left. And if you take, together, take that together with the first verse, what you should understand is that even the slightest diversion from into the wrong path can taint our lives. So if you want to fight against folly, the first thing Solomon tells us is this, watch your path. Watch your path. And the idea is reinforced in verse 3. He says, even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. So we should not just beware the path we take. We should be careful how we walk on any path set before us. In other words, what Solomon tells us is that the person... The foolish person will expose themselves as a fool in how they live and how they act. Now, a really important caveat I want to mention here is this. When the Bible refers to somebody as a fool, they are not referring to somebody of low intelligence. And if I were to ask you, who, who do you know that's a fool? What, what type of person would come to mind? You would say somebody who's pretty dumb, 
But that's, that's not what Solomon's saying. No, he says in order to understand, it's, it's important to understand that folly can show up at any end of the IQ scale. Be careful and examine yourself, essentially. Because a fool is somebody who is impulsively disobedient, arrogant, somebody who has no regard for the glory of God. In fact, Counselor Dan Allender uh, says the fool is guilty of hot anger, a hot anger, a self-centeredness, a, a hatred of discipline and wisdom. So the question that we should be asking ourselves daily is this, am I playing the fool today? Am I playing the fool today? And if I am, I may be the dead fly who's making the expensive, expensive perfume stink. So speaking of hot anger, Solomon continues this way in verse 4. He says, if the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. Now, this verse introduces the character of the ruler, which, yes, can be applied to politics, but there are also many people who play the role of ruler in our lives. We got a boss, we got parents, ministry leaders, whatever. If that leader, if that ruler in your life acts like a fool, Solomon says, it does not give you license to reciprocate because Folly added to folly only makes the whole world worse. Don't do it. Instead, Solomon says, hold your ground. Hold your ground. If you want to fight against folly, you can't act like a fool. You need to be wise. You need to be sharp. Kind of reminds me of the, the poise concept that Pastor Dave was talking about last week. It's, it's a similar idea. So when someone brings anger against you, what do you do? You keep calm and you carry on. Don't chase that, that buffalo that's enticing you, that's trying to get you angry. Otherwise, the buffalo is going to keep calm and stampede all over you. Be careful. And it's true, isn't it, right? What, what, what did the Apostle Peter tell the church experiencing persecution? He says that you should hold your ground by doing what? By doing good. So in response to harmful authorities, Peter says this, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of those foolish people. So even if hot anger comes against you, keep calm and do good. That's the meme that Solomon would be bringing out today. And I understand it's hard. I, I get it, right? Some of us right now, we got, we got harsh bosses that are difficult to work for. Uh, others of us, we got concerns over the direction of our country and our world. And it would feel really good in the flesh to just lash out with actions and reactions and strong language. What would that look like? Well, it could look like getting slapped in the face on national television. Do you remember the slap heard around the world last year? Now, I recognize it was really odd, and there's been a lot that has happened since then, but when Chris Rock got slapped by Will Smith, he could have screamed at him. He, I mean, Chris Rock is not known for his, you know, holding back on his words. He, he could have punched back. He could have done any number of things. Instead, what did he do? He kept calm. He played it cool. And I think he probably got the better press afterwards. Solomon warns us against harsh reactions. If you want to fight against folly, keep calm, do good. Follow Jesus in all you do. Otherwise, you'll simply be dead flies who ruin expensive perfume. So how do you fight against folly? Don't be a dead fly in the perfume. It's the first thing he says. Watch your path, hold your ground. Next, Solomon introduces us to another more nefarious character, 
He says, if you want to fight against folly, you have to beware the venom of a snake. Okay, so again, harsh transitions here, right? First we got dead flies, now we got a snake charmer. What in the world is going on? Well, I think Solomon is using an unorthodox method to remind us again that some things in life are uncertain and can happen to anyone. However, it's also true, two things can be true at once, it's also true that those things can be avoided. So look at verses, uh, chapter 10, verse 5 to 7. He says, There is another evil I have seen under the sun. Kings and rulers make a grave mistake when they give great authority to foolish people and low positions to people of proven worth. I have even seen servants riding horseback like princes and princes walking like servants. So, so this verse outlines the danger of promoting people to leadership who pursue the path of folly. Solomon says, again, two things simultaneously. First, it's a bit ironic that people are promoted to leadership who don't deserve it, and yet it happens all the time. Second, he also says, beware of those you promote to leadership because they can bite you with their venom. This is further emphasized in verse 11. He says, if a snake bites you before you charm it, what's the use of being a snake charmer? Right? Man, I can charm a snake, but man, if I'm not going to do it and he's going to bite me and I'm going to die, what's the point? Unlike the fly, the snake is an especially dangerous, venomous animal. So a dead fly can make your perfume stink, but a snake's bite can kill you. And this can happen to anyone, he's saying here. If you don't take the time to charm, to train the snake before you let it out of its cage. How similar it can be when we allow foolish people to have authority in our lives. There's a snake that has not been charmed. Have you ever been bitten by a snake that has not been charmed? Oh, it maybe even had happened when you were chasing down that buffalo, that pursuit you were doing. You were blinded by it. What does it look like? Well, maybe there's somebody in your life you confided in, and they used details you shared against you. That's venom. Maybe you trusted somebody to take over your company, and they really weren't ready. Uh, they didn't have the character. They, they were walking down the wrong path, and they took a lot of people with them. Venom. If the snake bites you before you charm it, what does it matter if you have the title of a snake charmer? Your decisions were folly. So how do we fight against it? Well, again, there's some things we can't control. As we learned the other week, even bad things happen to good people. However, there are some things I think that we can potentially avoid if we take wise steps. So in verses 8 to 10, Solomon outlines four examples of accidental circumstances that can happen to anyone, but which can also be mitigated if we take certain steps. So I'll call the first one the pit. The pit. Now, the pit... And we've all experienced this. The pit is something that maybe we fall into unexpectedly. We get involved in a situation that may or may not be of our own making, and it traps us. So Solomon says this, he who digs a pit will fall into it. So perhaps you were digging that pit to make a well so people could drink. Or maybe somebody dug a pit and they hid it because they wanted you to fall into it and they wanted to capture you. Either way, the wise person or the fool, they can both fall into the pit. But 
it may be possible to avoid the pit if we examine the road. If we examine the road. A lot of people fall into pits in their lives because they are not watching where they are going. Nowadays, people are walking along, looking down at their phone, catching up on the news, texting, laughing, whatever it is. And when you're doing that, you're just not examining the road. You could easily fall into a pit like this. What's going to happen to this guy right here? It is the fool who doesn't examine the road. The second accidental circumstance we encounter is the wall. The wall. So while pits involve, while pits involve digging, walls involve demolishing. Walls involve demolishing. So imagine you got a sledgehammer and you're, you're getting ready to open up that room in your house and then guess what happens? You beat the wall and then a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. You say, whoa, you took the hammer, you slammed it into the wall, and out pops the snake ready to pounce. Wow. Now, to some extent, Solomon is saying this can happen to anybody, right? Sledgehammer, wall, snake. Wow, who knew? It doesn't matter if you're wise or foolish. On the other hand, he's saying this could be avoided if you had examined the structure and looked for the dangers before you started the process. And this is what some of us do in life, right? We, we don't get a sense of what we're up against before we make a decision. And then a snake bites us and we look like a fool. Third accidental circumstance we encounter is the stone, verse 9. This image is close to the second in the sense that we often need to look ahead when doing work. When we don't, it can lead to injury. So Solomon says, verse 9, He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. So the point in this verse is, yes, there is some danger in different types of work. So if you're mining rocks or you're chopping wood, there's always a chance you're going to get hurt, wise or fool. However, sometimes this happens because we've not examined the task before, we, before us and come prepared. So if you knew you were mining, it would be a pretty good idea to wear a helmet and safety glasses. If you knew you were splitting logs, perhaps you would bring special boots for the work or whatever. When, when you get injured, it's because we didn't take into account the tools we needed to bring. And the final accidental circumstance is, speaking of tools, the axe. Verse 10, the axe. This one is a tool that may have involved the work we just talked about, but it's also a reminder that accidents, yes, happen at work, but sometimes the problem is that we did not troubleshoot the tools that we have. So Solomon says this, using a dull axe requires great strength. So sharpen the blade. That's the value of wisdom. It helps you succeed. Yes, you can go to work and sometimes the tools don't work correctly, or it can happen because we're not performing general maintenance on what we have. Because the axe was not sharp, the person had to exert more energy to get the job done, which could have been avoided if we had examined the tool. You know, there's a really famous story about two lumberjacks chopping wood. Have you heard it? They were competing to chop more wood. One lumberjack, he kept stopping and taking breaks while the other one was just working vigorously and chopping and chopping, never stopping. And yet, it was the one who took breaks that chopped more wood in one. And when they were done, the, the one lumberjack asked the other, he said, how did you chop more wood than me even though you were taking breaks? And the other lumberjack replied, when I took a break, that's when I was sharpening my axe. 
I was making it sharper. I was examining my tool. So commentator Phil Riken says this about our preparation of a tool like an axe. He says, if we are wise, therefore, we will take the time to prepare our blade. And this principle applies to education. Be sure to get the best training, sharpening your skills for effective service in the kingdom of God. It applies to relationships. A prudent courtship is far more likely to lead to a more successful marriage than a whirlwind romance. It applies to ministry. Before you start something new, make sure you have everything you need to succeed. So accidents can happen to anyone, but don't use that as an excuse. It would be prudent, it would be wise to look ahead and anticipate to be prepared. If we don't take the time to charm the snake before you let it out of its cage, it's going to bite you. So how do we fight against folly? We should desire strategic foresight. So think back to that opening story. I don't think George Custer was thinking ahead when he started chasing that buffalo, not using strategic foresight. One guy on a horse next to a large buffalo delaying the kill. What happened? The snake bit him before he could charm it. Now, anybody looking at that could have told George Custer, chasing a buffalo right now is a bad idea. And it almost got him killed. Are you taking stock of the challenges and the decisions in your life? Or are you chasing a buffalo without a care in the world? All right, so first we saw flies. Then we had snakes. The final image Solomon uses to warn us about folly is the tweet of a bird. This final point, I think, is applicable for all of us. Because the tweet of a bird is synonymous with the words we use every day. And the way we speak is often done in foolishness and folly. So consider for a moment the very social media platform that's patterned after a bird, Twitter. Right? If you want to say something, what do you do? You tweet. And you can tweet and 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 tweet. And you know what that's called? It's called a tweet storm. But the big question is, are those tweets injected with wisdom or folly? Look at what Solomon says in verse 12. He says, The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. Sounds very proverbial. Now, what's implied in that verse? A wise person uses his mouth, his words, to win favor with people and influence them. By contrast, the fool uses words that are all about them. The fool is always talking about themselves, with themselves, to themselves. In fact, have you ever been in a conversation when you realize your presence really wasn't required? That's the fool. That's the fool. The fool is always talking about themselves. You can't get in a word in edgewise. But it's also true that the words of a fool can come back and bite them in the end because the tweet storm can turn out pretty poorly for the tweeter sometimes. In fact, it very much feels like this. Look at verse 13. It says, the beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. Aha! Right? Very conveniently gets us to the title of our series. The words people use in person, on text, on social media, or on email, they all contribute to the madness we feel in everyday life because the words of a fool lead to madness. Why? They don't build up. They often destroy they don't offer life and encouragement. 
They often steal life for selfish gain. So think for a moment about the words that you use every day. What characterizes your speech with your wife, with your husband, with your children, or friends, or coworkers? Do a self-assessment. In fact, go home today and ask your family to honestly assess your speech. And some of us won't do that because we know what they're going to say. We want to avoid that. What, what words would they use to describe you? James tells us that life and death are in the power of the tongue. We can build people up, we can tear them down, sometimes in the same conversation. We can speak truth or we can speak lies, sometimes in the same conversation. And there's one particular problem that plagues our world today and infects our speech, and that's the problem of reactivity. Reactivity. We live in a culture, even within the church, where we react rather than pause and listen. James tells us to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. We do the opposite. When we react, we are more likely to speak like the fool. Our words will be about us and our feelings. We will be accusing the other person of being the problem because so much of the words that are offered on places like social media, they're reactions to what somebody said. Reactivity has killed both conversations and deep relational building, and it's directly related to how we use words. Author Paul David Tripp wrote a book with this exact title, and in the opening chapters, he discusses our culture of toxic reactivity and its fruits. He makes some pretty keen observations, so read this with me. Kind of a long quote, but I think he gets at our problem. He says, I'm afraid this reactionary culture also lives in our homes, where often our responses to one another are more shaped by stirred-up emotions than humble, forgiving, and patient love. In our homes, flashes of irritation, anger, hurt, and impatience propel way more of our responses to one another than we're willing to admit. Let's be honest. It's not unusual for the communication between husbands and wives to be reactive rather than constructive. These responses lack biblical thoughtfulness. They're formed more by emotion than contemplation, and they provide more heat than light. The same is true with parenting. It is so easy as parents to react emotionally in ways that are unhelpful and surely don't advance the crucial work of heart transformation that our children need. Does that lay out the issue? Because sometimes the buffalo that we were talking about before, it's a desire, the thing we're chasing is a desire to use our words to win an argument or to put people down so we can look good. And when we chase that buffalo, a bunch of people are injured by our speech in the process. In that moment, don't chase that buffalo, shoot that buffalo. Tripp agrees with that sentiment in his, in his conclusion. He says, we cannot, we must not normalize a reactivity culture that is more of a culture of harm than a culture of grace. So how do we fight folly? It begins with our words. The wise use of words as we cultivate a speech full of grace and truth and love marked by the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
So how are we doing with our words, church? Are we a reactive people or a grace-filled people? This is how the difference between wisdom and folly is lived out in our daily lives because so much of our words flow from the foundation we build our lives upon. That's what Solomon draws out in verse 18. He says, through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. Basically, he's saying somebody was pretty lazy and didn't put the work into building the house. That's the image of a structure that's poorly built. It's leaky, and it's wet, and it's not the kind of house you want to live in when the rains come. But the truth is, if we don't feel secure and grounded in life, our words will reflect it. They will often be words of anger and not grace. And those words will come back to haunt us, which is how Solomon finishes the chapter in verse 20, bringing up the actual image of the bird. He says this, Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king. Nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice or some winged creature tell the matter. Now that's such an interesting image for today's world, isn't it? It's interesting for at least two reasons. First, so many people build their lives, their foundations upon things like political power, first and foremost. And when your candidate loses, it feels like your life is over. And then our speech reflects that. Behind closed doors, what do we say about our leaders, our bosses, etc.? Because if our, if our foundation is secure on Christ and his kingdom, our speech will look different. And second, be careful what you say. Because Siri, Alexa, they're always listening. And if you say something out of anger, man, they might start purchasing items you don't want. Whatever the little birdie of Twitter carries to the internet is there for all the world to see. Tweet, 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 tweet. Friends, if we want to fight against folly, one of our greatest weapons is wise words. We should sharpen them so we can speak truth, humbly, in love, so that God would get the glory. In fact, the Apostle Paul wrote these words to the Colossian church. He said, walk in wisdom with outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Is that us? Is our speech gracious, seasoned with salt? Are we prepared to answer a question about our faith with confidence and humility? Will our words reflect a heart of wisdom rather than a heart of folly? How do we fight against folly? You remember the fly, the snake, and the bird. Watch your path. Use wise foresight and words. But the only way to really and truly banish folly for good is by spending time with the creator of the universe and his son, Jesus Christ, falling in love with his presence. Amen. So Solomon offers an image that points to this truth. Ecclesiastes 10.17 says this, Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. And you know that so much of Ecclesiastes has focused on reminding us to enjoy life. But the only way to truly enjoy life is to be in a relationship with the one who created it through his son, Jesus Christ. Amen. The prophet Isaiah called him the prince of peace. And boy, do we need peace in our world if we're going to fight against folly. 
In fact, at the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 20, it gives this beautiful scene, this beautiful image of the marriage supper of the Lamb when Christ will come and be with his people. It's a scene when God's people will come together and they will eat with their Savior, their King, the one who is greater than Solomon. And indeed, the land will be happy when we feast with our prince. But we don't have to wait until the end. We can feast now. We can feast today. And in the presence of Jesus, you will find the antidote to folly in the wisdom of God himself. Rest there and let his power transform you for his glory and the sake of the gospel. Amen? Amen. Let me invite the worship team on stage for one final song to close us out. And as they come, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your grace and your love and your power. Lord, we confess that so often we are drawn to folly, to foolishness. We, we, love, like, we love chasing that buffalo, Lord, whatever it is. Help us to see the folly of our actions. Help us to lift our eyes up beyond the sun to see you, Lord Jesus. May you be the vision of our lives. May our eyes be laser-focused on you, Lord God. May we, may we drown out all the distractions as we pursue you and love you and seek you. May we eat with you every single day and relish being in your presence. And when that happens, Lord, it transforms our heart, our lives, everything. We give ourselves to you today in Jesus' name. Amen.